quit um, because I didn't want to raise my kids in an alcoholic environment. And, you know, I came from a large Catholic family, <laughs> which, you know, a lot of uh, fish fries on Friday, you know, hate your job all week and then drink and forget about it on the weekend. Uh, you know, although my father did love, love his job, but, you know, I just didn't, I, my wife and I really kind of came from similar backgrounds. She's from Pittsburgh. I'm from south, south side of Chicago. Um, and we really were just wanted to break the cycle um, that we saw, you know, this kind of sociological and chemical dependence recidivism that was going on in our families. We just wanted to at least challenge ourselves to try to break those cycles and raise our kids in an environment where you want to build a life that doesn't need to be escaped from, as opposed to learning how to escape from the shitty life you've created. <laughs> um, and that's worked out well, you know, we have two great kids are happily married for 18 years now. And, and, um, and uh, really it has to do, a lot of it has to do just with self-respect, right? Was there like a shitty aspect of life that you were trying to escape from at the time? I mean, you know, I guess I, from the outside, it looks like a lot of what you've been able to experience of your life has been pretty charmed. Yeah, I would say that. And I, and I think, you know, that's a testament to the insidious nature of the disease of alcoholism that, you know, you really start to, it's hard to quantify. Um, it gets harder to quantify the kind of positive experiences and you, you're running from things you don't know what you're running from, right? And I mean, granted, in the, in the mid-90s, there was a lot of turmoil in my life. My, my, my relationship with my band was fragmenting. We never really, we were never the best of friends in the best of circumstances, um, but, you know, we, we, we suffered each other because the musical output was so great um, that it was hard to kind of discount that part of it. Um, but in my family, my father passed away. I mean, there's a lot of things going on that kind of, you know, uh, lent themselves or required you to take a step back and heal. And obviously being in the throes of the music industry in 1995, that wasn't allowed, right? You tour, we tour for 14 months straight and never take a break. And if something happened, it was still about, you know, what's the margin on the tour and, the, you know, those types of things that can be, you know, to a young man who never really had a chance to grow up can seem very insensitive and very confusing. So, you know, I just kind of got tired of it. And I, and I, I had read that book so many times in, in, in other people's lives, in my own family, in the business. And I just, at one point, and it wasn't like AA or anything like that. It wasn't any programming. It was just it was more of like an Egyptian burial, right? Where you put your heart on one side of the scale and, and you put your conscious on the other and you see kind of who, who wins, right? I put this kind of old life on one side of the scale and then this life that I desired on the other side and it just seemed to outweigh all this bad stuff. So I figured, okay, it's, it's worth working for and that's kind of what kept me going, right? And then obviously having the birth of my daughter, Audrey, was a huge catalyst as well. I quit drinking a little, a little over a year ago, a relatively easy thing to do in, in my job. I have to assume that if you're a touring musician, uh, you're just kind of around it all the time, right? It's, it has to be really difficult to, to, to divorce yourself of that. It's really like somebody showing up with donuts every morning and you're at the front door, you know, I mean, I, if I have a soft spot for anything being a vegan, it's like, I'm, you know, I miss donuts probably more than anything. So, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the candy man is always around. It's kind of, you know, it's an, there's an expectation for you to be kind of a wild man. In fact, you know, I had, I had a, a bit of a reputation, if not a, a big reputation for being kind of a nutbag uh, back then and, you know, super self-destructive and, you know, oftentimes people would just kind of laugh and chuckle and say, oh, that's so rock and roll or blah, blah, blah. But so, you know, the behavior gets reinforced and the availability of, you know, destructive mechanisms are always there. So, 
Yeah, it's difficult. But I mean, you know, again, I think uh, when I talk to people that are in recovery now, I just say, look, you know, prayer and all of that stuff is a necessary component. And I, and I love to pray and I love to meditate and I love to, you know, uh, I love to sit there and visualize, uh, you know, what I want to happen. But it's really about value, right? And, and finding things of greater value than the destruction. Um, at least that's what it was for me. It was really about looking at one set of, uh, of components and saying, these, this has more value than these others. And this is worth working for, and this is not. Um, and jettisoning those things that, are, that were, um, you know, ca- ca- counterproductive or toxic, uh, and, you know, over time, I mean, it doesn't take long, right? It's like, like going vegan or anything else. Within six weeks, your fat cravings go away. You start to feel great. You're not tired. You're not taking naps anymore. My playing is way better. It's like it becomes a no-brainer, right? And it's the same with, like, the, I'm sure you experience without with not drinking. I mean, all of a sudden, you're, the fog is gone. You're clear-headed. You know, you, you, you hear yourself talking intelligently, which is, which is nice, as opposed to, you know, somebody calling you and going, you remember what you said to me last night? <laughs> like, no, um, you know, those types of things. So for me, again, it was just, you know, it was just about a value proposition and saying, look, you know, does building a life that's, you know, uh, free of escapism, does that sound good to you? I mean, does it, does raising children in an environment where there never has to be any lies going on? I mean, that's, that's, that was, that was pretty attractive to me. And I mean, as my wife put it, it was probably the most punk rock thing I could have done at the time since I'd kind of done everything else. Yeah, I was coming off a racing career, um, you know, playing with the band, having been fired, rehired, band breaks up, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there wasn't really much, there really wasn't much to do. The fuse had kind of burned out. So the next kind of logical thing was just to go to the complete other side of that and just get into this kind of health, health jam um, that's been uh, incredible. Do you get the sense that you had to be away from the band for a while in order to really be grateful for what you had? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's the case with anything that you uh, are immersed in, right? It's hard to be at the best of times, in the best of circumstances, it's hard to raise yourself up 30,000 feet and look down at your world and say, like, holy shit, I created all this stuff or, or, you know, this is the fruits of my labor. It's just hard when you're when you're in it all the time and you're just like, Next song, next song, next song, next tour, next tour, next tour. Practice, 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 practice. You know, it's hard to be objective. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, now with the the band, the Pumpkins and a 30-year arc, I mean, we can, you know, I talk to Billy all the time. We're always on Zoom calls. We're always working on music. Uh, We're working on a ton of music right now, uh, which is super fun. And, you know, I think when you get to that point of living in service and gratitude, then everything becomes so much better. I mean, before, you know, it's like, it's like my father used to talk about, my father worked on the railroad, which kind of everybody knows, because I always talk about it. But, you know, he was really, he was really a proponent of like vocation versus occupation, right? Like vocation is something you do because you love to do it and you'd be doing it whether you got paid or not. And occupation is kind of just something you schlep out for money, right? And and that kind of always stuck with me. So I think as you get into the gratitude service aspect of what you do, you start to really engage that vocation, the vocational aspect of your career uh, is which where I think I'm at now, which is, you know, I feel, 
confident that, you know, I'm not super nitpicky about my technique anymore. I'm kind of, I'm kind of cool with the way I play. I'm not my, you know, my worst critic anymore. I'm, I'm okay to love myself with, with my imperfections and realize that it has value and people, people, including myself want to listen to it. Um, you know, that wasn't the case in the nineties when we were all so self-critical and really trying to, you know, outguess the market, so to speak, um, or, or trying to be cooler than everybody else. You know, I mean, it was, you know, taxing that can be, I mean, to be a young man, I mean, in your thirties in the music business is like, everything is rooted in comparison, right? It's rooted in uh, competition and comparison. And when you get into competition and comparison, the next logical step is judgment, right? And then you're living in judgment all the time. And that becomes very toxic, right? So, so now I'm, I've, I've, I've meditated enough to know that like comparison competition leads to judgment. I try to stay away from those things now and try to really just root myself in service and, and gratitude, which, you know, is, is not an exact science. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still a very emotional person. I get pissed off, you know, my dogs, cats, whatever. I still have to deal with planet earth, but at least uh, from a musical standpoint um, and my, my relationship with my instrument pretty much predicated on, on gratitude uh, now. I suspect that it's easy to take it for granted because it, with some, a few exceptions, that's kind of the only job you've had, right? I mean, you, you started drumming professionally at a, at a really early age. This has just been your life since you were essentially a teenager. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, with, you know, uh, a couple, a couple hiatuses here and there to, to go and feed myself. But yeah, I mean, just um, for the most part, I've always been a musician uh, playing professionally or semi-professionally since I was 14, 15. Um, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, when you, when you get into that type of investment, there's a safety in that knowing that like, you don't, there's no, you don't have to do anything else. I mean, I, I was a corporate CEO for four years because I loved that deal. And I, and I really wanted to learn that lane. Um, but that to me was just another form of drumming. I mean, that didn't really, I didn't really see that as a different, I just saw that as learning a different instrument. Right. Um, and, and it really made musical sense to me in a, in a very kind of complex way, but in a way that I understood. Um, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, people would always say, I guess not always, but sometimes people would say to me, like, what would you be doing if you weren't playing, you know, the United Center tonight? And I was always, my stock answer was I'd be playing some dump for free because that's what I've always done. I mean, I just, I didn't get into drumming for the economics, right? Or because I got into drumming because drumming was inside of me. I didn't, it wasn't the other way around. Like, I'm going to learn to play the drum so I can go drive a Ferrari or make a bunch of money. It was like, this is something that I got to do or else I'm going to self-destruct, right. Or self-implode or whatever. So like even today, I mean, I spent, you know, all day yesterday working on my practice pad and my my kids are like, don't you you fucking know how to do this yet or what? (laughs) You didn't necessarily get in it to be a rock star, but it sounded like you're alluding to the fact before that, you know, at the height of everything that there was maybe a certain sense of obligation that you had to keep this thing going at a high level that you had to keep, you know, maintain, do what you could to kind of maintain the popularity and keep the machine going and all of the people it supported. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you get into, you know, that type of architecture and you've got, you know, responsibility beyond yourself, right? And you've got, you know, you're accountable to not only yourself, but employees and and managers and and other people that have become, you know, dear friends have, you know, laid their coats over puddles for you before and and have had, you know, smoothed the way for you. Um, So, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
you know, and again, I mean, in a, in a, in a selfish business like the, the music industry, you know, there is, there is a lot of selflessness, right? And there's a lot of people out there who practice service. And I have, you know, 30 years of intact relationships with those people that are still, you know, very much my friends. I mean, I just, just talking to uh, Phil Cordero, who was the president of Virgin, you know, uh, is still like a family member, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, gets, it gets a little murkier as you, get, as you get bigger, right? Even now, I mean, we've got, you know, we weren't going to do a big tour this year, but next year we were going to do, we were going we to, we were going to go out and do a world tour. And, you know, we've got 50 employees that are kind of, you know, sitting around, right? And, and we're trying to do what we can to generate revenue for, for, for people, including band members. Um, but it's tough, right? You become, you know, you become kind of a de facto business owner, uh, as a as a founding member of a bloated organization like the Smashing Pumpkins, I mean, it's like we got people. I mean, we have people I don't, I've never even met in per- person that I've emailed, you know, hundreds of times with. It's just you know, it gets it gets that part of it, you know, the impersonal part of it. It's it gets you you kind of get used to it, but but nevertheless, I mean, you're dealing with human beings, right? And you want to be compassionate. How much actual music are you playing day to day these days during the quarantine? at least an hour uh, of practicing. Um, you know, I, it's kind of my church in the morning. I kind of like, I like to stay attached to my instrument. Um, I'm always kind of switching this, switching drums around and tweaking stuff. And right now, I mean, uh, I just finished uh, drum arrangements on 12 songs that, that Billy had written after the, uh, after the last album came out. So, you know, that was 10 days of solid work, probably, probably eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, which I love. I mean, I don't, I don't, this doesn't seem like work to me. It just, when I look up at the clock and it's 1030 and I'm like, shit, I've been down here since 930 in the morning. <laughs> like, hey, you know how that goes. It's like, you're just, in, you're in the mix. Right. Um, but there's other days where I, you know, I go ride my motorcycle or go get on my mountain bike or I take, I've got a, I've got a, a track membership and a, and a, and a, and a, uh, a Porsche that I like, I like to keep my racing chops up too. So, you know, I, I try to keep it, um, I try to keep it, you know, uh, as diverse as I can with the instrument uh, being the kind of epicenter. Of it. I mean, I've found, I found over the years that really all of my relationships kind of hub out of my relationship with my instrument. So if I don't practice or I feel like I'm kind of slacking off, then it really impacts my relationship with my wife, my kids, my animals, um, you know, my house. Um, so I try to, I try to be, I try to police that. Um, pretty vigilantly and try to uh, try to stay on top of that relationship and make sure that I'm, because as I nurture that relationship, it becomes self-nurturing. Right? And that's, that's where I'm, I'm not the best at self-nurturing. I'm kind of, I've always been kind of hard on myself, which is part of the reason that I still practice and part of the, so, you know, as you know, I mean, there's, there's kind of flaws and character, uh, character, um, things about your character that may be, you know, that may be a little toxic in here, here and there, but they keep you honest. Right. So there's a relationship with those things that in, in regard to keeping myself honest, that I try to keep intact. What are you getting out of the act of, of practicing? I mean, is it as simple as just sort of getting some of that aggression out? Is it centering yourself? No, it's self-expression. It's really, it's really just about painting in real time. Right. And when I say practicing, I mean, there's stuff that I'll go down and I'll work on because it's part of a song that I'm writing or it's part of a, part of a, part of a thing that I'm playing and I'll work on it till I, till I get it, you know, to the point where I can record it. But when I say practicing, I'm just, I'm just talking about going down and playing music, right? Just going and 
off the top of my head, just composing in real time and painting, you know, the picture of the day. Um, and that for me is really just, that's, that's the most important part of it. I mean, the technique and all that stuff is just, they're just learning brushstrokes, right? And, and the only reason for me to practice technique is to get kind of what's out, what's in here in my heart out onto the canvas of the drum set. Um, so that's, you know, when I find a blockage from here to uh, manifestation, that's when the technical practice comes in. Like I still got a teacher. I've got this teacher, Steve Lyman, who comes to my house four times a year and gives me like a year's worth of stuff to work on. He's a, a jazz master uh, drummer. He studied with John Riley, Ari Honig. He studied with some of my favorite drummers. And, and, and while I was out playing, because I never had time to go to school, he was going to the new school in New York and studying with all these masters. So now that I've got some time, he's, he comes to my house and just, we work for three days together and he gives me a lot of stuff to work on um, as far as like jazz independence, those types of things. So that part of the journey is super fun for me. Um, I love, I love the fact that I've been playing for, let's see, I've been playing for 40, 46 years. Right. Um, and I'm still like, I still suck at so many things. That's like, that's what's pretty cool about the drum set. It's like, you just, it's not like other stuff where you just, you just, it's never over. Right. So, so I feel like from a mental standpoint, from a physical standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint, there's always things to really just keep me alive, keep the blood flowing, keep the brain flowing, always doing kind of these Tetris, you know, type of puzzles with coordination. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's that, the, it's, 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 it's really, I guess, I guess the, 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 the way to do it, right. Or the, the key to the, the key to the whole operation is just living in present time. Right. If you're, the less I'm, the less I'm thinking about the past or the more I'm projecting into the future, the, the more kind of murky the relationship gets. If I'm just okay with going downstairs and creating in real time and present time and being grateful in that moment, then the other stuff kind of sorts itself out. But when I get into this kind of like, oh, I want to be this guy in six weeks or I want to be this girl in eight weeks, like I, that stuff for me just kind of ruins it. A lot of people describe things as being meditative or like meditation, whether it's playing an instrument or making your art or anything else. But as somebody who actually does practice meditation and somebody who does yoga, does the act of practicing your instrument and, you know, doing something like meditation, do they fill similar necessities? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they can. I mean, it depends on kind of where I plant myself. Uh, on the horizon um, with my instrument. Um, you know, if I get into some type of Fela type groove and I'm just churning it, right? And I'm just Tony Allen for 20 minutes. I mean, that's, that's, you come out of that like you just slept for eight hours, right? I mean, there was, there's pumpkin songs like United States or songs like that, that we really, we really listened to a lot of Fela, right? And, and, and really tried to get into kind of what Tony was doing and, and if, you, if you're familiar with Fela's music, you'll know that it's very modal, right? And it's just kind of do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do for 10 minutes, right? Just the same song. And then the variables come from the harmony, the horn parts, the vocal line, the melody over the top, right? But underneath, the, the foundation of that stuff is meditation. What gets people into that zone, even my kids, when I put it on, they come downstairs, they'll start talking to me, and then they're like, they kind of look at the stereo then they sit down and next thing you know, it's been 15 minutes. Right. Um, you know, that type of stuff is very meditative other stuff where, you know, you're, you're, you're 
you're, you're playing some stuff that's more demonstrative, not so much, but, but even like driving my race car, right. I, I go, I go to the track and I drive and I, I raced semi pro for two years. So I'm a pretty decent driver, but when you're driving a race car on the edge, um, you know, on a racetrack, there's really nothing else to think about other than driving that race car. So you're, you're into this single minded relationship where you're trying to go faster and faster and more, more efficiently around the track every time without dying, of course, but you're not really thinking like, did I leave the gas on or did I leave the water running? You're thinking like, I don't want to die in this corner. So I got to hit the brakes now. You know, it's that stuff for me is very meditative as well. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's, that's been the attraction, either riding a motorcycle, riding, driving a race car. I just uh, took a mountain climbing class, a rock climbing class out in Colorado. I was doing a lot of uh, rock climbing, which I've never done before. and just totally fell in love with the sport for the same exact reason that I like drumming is that, okay, the goal here is not to fall off the mountain, right? Not to think about, like, did I bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with me or not? Because they're like, oh! Do you feel like there might be something, like, semi or at least, you know, approaching self-destructiveness and, and the desire to do all these kind of high adrenaline and potentially extremely dangerous things? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I don't see it that way. I, I you know, I got to tell you, though, you know, when you look at race car driving, people think, oh, my God, you got to be a nut. Right. But honestly, like when you're racing in Florida, like at Sebring or Daytona, the most dangerous part of your day is not on the racetrack driving with a bunch of professional drivers It's driving from the track to the hotel. Right. Because then you get on the road and you're like, oh, my God, these people are not professional drivers. This is really, really dangerous. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, from the outside looking in race car driving, same with mountain climbing. I mean, it's, it's really about the commitment to the preparation and and the reverence and respect uh, for the technique and the equipment and 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 the risk, uh, risk uh, aversity or risk uh, willingness to take risk that makes it safe. We did two weeks in Colorado. I spent two days uh, rock climbing, and the other times we hiked like 65 miles backcountry hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park. And, I mean, I lost a toenail hiking. I, like, twisted my ankle. I mean, there was way more stuff going on just in the general walking through rocks than there ever was. Like, I mean, I fell a few times climbing, but I had pitons in, so I just I didn't fall very far. But, yeah, and same with a race car. I mean, you once you, once you master the techniques of car control, you know, it's not that inherently dangerous. I mean, obviously, yeah, you can, you can crash and burn and, and burst into flames, whatever, but you can do that plan. You can do that play in the drums too, <laughs> as I've proved a few times, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I just think for me, like the idea of pushing the envelope or challenging yourself to do things that are out of your comfort zone, is kind of my own, it's kind of my life version of like the oblique strategy, right? Like Brian, you know, like I just apply it to my whole life. Is that where being a, a CEO of a tech company comes in? It's just you trying to get out of your comfort zone? Yeah, I think so. I think really that's where the learning happens, right? I mean, I think the learning and the wisdom, they, it grows on the peripheral of, you know, your day to day. And I think, um, for me, I found that the fruit, the fruit out there is much sweeter than it is kind of, you know, just playing, you know, uh, tonight, tonight, you know, better than I did last night. I mean, it's, it's for me like playing with the complex and playing with Moeller and those guys. I mean, guys that are at the top of their game, guys that play with Herbie Hancock. And, I mean, that for me is like really, okay, you got to show up for that stuff. And that's, and when you, when you do that stuff, it's like, it challenges you to, to, to be, you know, 
not the best guy there. I mean, and really like, and be humble enough to learn uh, from people. Uh, and I think that's where, for me, the growth happens. And at Live One, being CEO is the same thing. I mean, I knew nothing about being a CEO. I was just purely involved with the company as an investor um, and as a board member. And as the company started to grow, I got interested in the space and started started kind of uh, learning on my in my own kind of OCD way. I started reading, you know, copycats and the lean startup and the hard thing about hard things and you know all these tech manuals that were written. Innovators dilemma. I mean, I read every one of those books. And at one point, the board was like, "This guy is like extremely committed to like learning about the company." And it was because of my own kind of OCD dogged pursuit of knowledge that they asked me to be CEO. And I, I kind of got blindsided by the whole deal. And, and, and I remember I, I got off the phone and I, my wife was like, what, what's going on? So there was chairman of the board asking me if I would consider being CEO of the company. And then I called some of the other board members who I knew we were actively looking for a CEO at the time. I called some of the other board members and said, dude, this is crazy. Like, what, what do you, what do you guys think about this? Cause I certainly want to, I want to listen, you know, to you guys. And they were all, they were like, they were all for it. So they were like, look, I, you've demonstrated, you know, your, your, your kind of willingness to, to learn the business. You've obviously got a Rolodex that's extremely valuable to a quasi media company. So there were other components of my, of my career that were value adds to that job. I mean, not, 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 not the least of which, at 40, you know, seven, eight years old, most corporate CEOs were fans of the pumpkin. So it was like, it was easy for me to get, you know, Mark Andreessen on the blower or, or Steve Case or anybody else, right? I mean, so, so that part really, really worked out. But, but the great part about it was really just like with Steve Case, I met Steve Case, uh, uh, you know, he was talking about AOL and mm-hmm. I got to chit chat with him about being a CEO and I got to, I got to pick the brains of some of the greatest tech leaders out there, which for me was like, I was in hog heaven. I mean, I, I really, I really look at technology a lot. Like I look at music or like efficacious tech mechanisms will have rhythm and they'll have a narrative and they'll have a coda and they'll have harmony and, you know, they're congruent with their users and they're culturally connected. And, you know, those types of things that, you know, are the kind of foundations of a great pop song. Um, I just found a lot of kind of synchronicity, uh, synergy between between the two spaces. My day job, I'm an editor at TechCrunch, so I write about Silicon Valley all day. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Not the case across the board, but I definitely get the vibe with a lot of these guys that they were just like nerds who just wanted to be cool. And if you, and if you can sit down with them and like be the cool rock star and have this conversation about like Lollapalooza or something, like you can immediately ingratiate yourself to them. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was really like... The conclusion I came to was like, if tech would have never happened, these guys would have been in bands. I mean, they were the same guys that were starting bands in the late eighties and nineties, you know, Gen Xers. I mean, but yeah, just, uh, and a great, you know, great group of guys. I mean, the guys at Twitter, I mean, just really, you know, super cool. And, and, you know, as some of them as blindsided as, as anybody else when they, when they achieve success. Right. And, and guys that were really investing in their vocation and really rooted in discovery, which I thought was extremely, uh, extremely uh, compelling um, and attractive and still, you know, have a ton of respect for those guys. I know how hard it is. It's really, 
it's really a, you know, a no sleep job. You talked about being committed to it and, and, you know, and kind of having the passion in some of these connections, but like th- that must've been a really steep learning curve to start doing that. You know, I didn't know the front end from the back end of a cap table when I joined the company. Right. So within a year, you know, we had gone out and raised $4 million. I mean, I was taking, doing investor pitches. I'd gone to Silicon Valley. I'd met with all, all the, all the walks out there and, you know, done the dog and pony show. I mean, it was, yeah, zero to 60 was pretty, was pretty steep. I mean, you know, learn, and then, you know, we went from just me and two co-founders to 24 employees. I mean, we had 24 employees, an outsourced uh, engineering team in Ukraine. Um, you know, we were, we were, we were building an incredibly robust technology. Our downfall was that we were building it in HTML and mobile, mobile, mobile came up the back end and really capsized our company. Um, because we couldn't pivot. There wasn't a phone gap solution for our technology. Um, we had spent a lot of money to build it on, you know, in Node.js. Um, the people that built the back end, the admin panel, had built the Moscow Stock Exchange. They had done a high-frequency, low-latency trading mechanism for Deutsche Bank. I mean, these guys were like, because some of the, we were, we were, we were chat, but we were also ad tech. So a lot of the messages we were handling, like for World Cup soccer, stuff like that, we were in like 15,000 messages a second, right? So we had to have low latency, you know, high connectivity, high frequency, became very, very expensive to run. Amazon, you know, WebSockets, Amazon, you're talking like 250 grand burn rate a month, you know, to keep this boat anchor going. And, and, we tried everything we could do to sustain with our customers. We had Red Bull and NBC and a couple other big, big, big players, but they were moving to mobile, right? And, and we, we couldn't move to mobile as fast as our customers, and that was it. I mean, I couldn't I, – and I, it just came a time where I couldn't go back to my investors, some of which I knew very well, and, and ask for more money because I knew it, it was a 50-50 bet. And we were probably going to get our lunch eaten because we were going to be late to the party. So we just decided to kind of cut and run. I mean, were you going into the office every day? Were you, was it like oh, yeah. a real, yeah, you were like the guy every was, single day yeah. there. I commuted every day. I had an office on Michigan and Wacker and I, you know, I was there nine to five, if not later uh, every day, I didn't take days off. And that's kind of freaked those guys out. Right. Cause they, they're thinking like, okay, we're going to take a flyer on Chamberlain. He's probably not going to show up. It'll be a great figurehead. I just, they were like, what the hell, man? I had it in my own office. I was like, dude, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So I was there. I was there every day. I was the kind of main point person until we got a sales team. But, but yeah, I learned it all, man. I learned pipe drive. I learned Salesforce. I mean, I, I, I had project managers. I had Jira, you know, we had, we had uh, you know, we had Trello charts for our, our products. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was awesome. Was there ever a point when you were like, just, you know, you were in the office one day and it was just like, I, I guess this is just kind of my life now, or was it always clear that you were going to go back more back into music? I never really thought that far ahead. You know, I just thought this is what I'm doing right now. And this is cool. I mean, I, they, they played me really well. And, 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 you know, I mean, I wasn't making, you know, high six figures, but I mean, I was, I was making a reasonable salary. So, I mean, I, I was, I was into the gig, man. I thought like, it, it was just one of those things where like, there was a, there was a validation in it that really, uh, and, a, and, a, and I knew that as I was doing it, I was becoming more and more confident in my ability to do whatever I wanted um, because it was just so far from what I had been doing. 
right? People were like, yeah, what do you know about technology? But as I got to know the kind of investment crew in Chicago, uh, 1871 and, and uh, Chicago Ventures, uh, I2A, Stuart Larkins, Kevin Willer, those guys, uh, Howard Tallman, they were like, they became my, my good friends. And they were the ones that were just kind of egging me on to kind of get into it. In fact, it was Stuart um, from I2A when I was starting to poke around in the tech space in Chicago. I'd looked at Groupon. Lefkowski had asked me to, or uh, yeah, Andrew Mason had asked me to come into Groupon and start a record label at some point. And I was like, eh, I don't know about record label, but, but I like the tech space. Um, you know, those guys were the ones that encouraged me to kind of get involved. Uh, and it was Stuart that called me up for my 2A and said, hey, we got this company down here, Live One, um, that's looking to raise some money. We'd just like to tap your, your expert opinion because it's kind of a media play. So he was the one who invited me down to the, to the pitch. And when I saw the company, I was like, oh, my God, this is like a virtual audience for live streaming. Um, that's really, um, really, the goal was to try to replicate some of the emotional conversation that happens that, that really legitimizes content, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the painting, right? it's just a painting until somebody says something about it and then it kind of, it kind of qualifies it. Right. So it was kind of the same kind of same theory with uh, crowd surfing. But yeah, I just, I just got the bug and jumped in with both feet and I'm still very much involved. I have my consultancy and I, I consult with a lot of companies. I'm still an active investor. It's funny to be talking to you about this over zoom. It sounds like you were trying to crack the code the, the same way that a lot of people were about this kind of this, this virtual engagement. And it's still, you know, this is okay. I'm, you know, I, I as I said before, we're doing video. So it's kind of like, you know, we can have some semblance of the conversation and I'll just use the audio, but it feels like even in 2020, no one's really cracked the code of having that personal experience. No, you're absolutely right. It's still, I mean, it's, it's a long way off. Right. And, and it's, be, and it's because like, I just got a text message. I see my email going off on the left-hand side. There's so many distractions. If you and I were sitting in two chairs in a room and just talking, we would be having, you know, a visceral experience that's very analog, right? I mean, this is kind of the compressed digital version of the human experience where we're, we're, it's up to us to kind of fill in the delta between, you know, one bit and another. So, you know, it's a very, it gets very fragmented. Uh, a good, you know, and, you know, standing on stage playing live music, you understand that the crowd is basically the conductor, right? And, and the emotions coming off the crowd are really determining kind of how you're interpreting the music, at least for the bands that I'm in. Um, so without that, I mean, it just falls flat. We watched, um, we watched Hamilton the other night on Disney, right? And my daughter has seen it at the New York and, and Chicago and she wants to be a playwright. So she's really into theater, but yeah, it's just flat, right? I mean, it's a, it's one of the greatest plays ever. I love Lin-Manuel. I love those, those people. Uh, and they're incredible actors. But without being there, hearing the footstops on the stage, hearing the people behind you ruffling, it's like you just lose the, the personification of it, right? It just becomes, again, more of, a, more of a soundtrack to doing something else as opposed to what you're doing. And that's like my daughter is a record player and she's got, you know, 
from the time she was five, we used to take her down and she would pick out five records to play on her. So she's got like, she was just looking at, she, she would just look at the covers, right? So she's five, she's listening like Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> there are worse things to be listening to. Right, five. Well, it's good stuff. Right? Earth, Wind and Fire and Crosby, Stills, Nash. But, you know, even today when she drops a needle on a vinyl record, she sits there for 20 minutes and stares at the, stares at the record cover. But when she's listening to, you know, One Republic or whatever the hell else she's living to, listening to on her earbuds, she's, it becomes a kind of digital soundtrack for everything else she's doing, cleaning her fish tank or whatever she's doing, eating a sandwich. And that's kind of how this is, right? It becomes, it becomes the kind of digital soundtrack for the analog part of your life. I'm in my apartment right now, so I'm like, you know, immersed in my life and I'm trying to have this conversation with somebody else right now and, and just trying to kind of be focused on the present moment. And it's very difficult to do that through a computer with, as you said, like your notifications going off in the background. Yeah, and some people are good at it. You know, I think, I think the younger they are, the better. I mean, my kids are doing classes via Zoom and my daughter, who's, you know, she's in some D&D club online already and she's in some other club and some writer's workshops and stuff. So she lives in that world. So for her, the Delta isn't that big. I mean, she's, she's not as rooted in, in, in human connection as we are. I mean, we, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 56. I mean, we grew up, I grew up, you know, going to the ice skating rink and like <laughs> hanging out with my friends or playing baseball, you know, those types of analog uh, types of things. So for me, you know, the, the learning curve's a little steeper and it's harder for me to, I mean, obviously I love to talk. So, I mean, it's hard for me, it's, but still it's hard for me to get into, you know, the deeper, the deeper level, you know, what a conversation like this could really get into. Isn't that the whole driving force of playing live jazz music is literally just like feeding off of other people in person? That's right. And that's, that's, that's why I love, you know, playing straight ahead here in Chicago or LA with Moeller or Frank Catalano or any of those guys, because it only takes five minutes to play five minutes worth of music. Right. (laughs) And that's like that, that's all you need to know about it. I mean, it's, well, we made the parable. I mean, we, we wrote those songs over text messaging, uh, Randy Ingram, me and Moeller. We were just sending each other snippets. Then we wrote, then Randy wrote some charts. We got in the studio. I'd never met Chris Speed before. And uh, I met him that day. We got in the studio, sunset, every one of those versions of those songs is just one take of the rundown of the chart. It's just, a, it's just a document of a moment in time. Right. And with the warts and all, it's just, we, that was, that was our kind of challenge to ourselves. Can we just document an afternoon with musicians and have the balls to kind of put it out there? Um, and, and through that exercise, it really gave me the confidence and, and, and the idea that this kind of, uh, that the human experience um, is oftentimes rooted in imperfection, right? And, 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 and not everything needs to be quantized and, 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 and fixed, right? And I think, you know, you can watch somebody walk down the street, there's an imperfection to their gait. I mean, the way people are day to day, I mean, it's, it's rooted in an inconsistency that gives us identity, right? Or, or it adds to our character or it creates some type of persona, I think when you're dealing with self-expression, if you lose sight of that stuff, you're doing yourself and your listeners a disservice, right? Because they want to hear, maybe you listen to Kind of Blue on a great stereo and you hear like Miles walking away from the microphone or sniffling or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 Cannonball Adderley blowing spit out of his alto sax. I mean, there's things that are going on in that room that are outside of the music that really make you feel like you're experiencing something that's real. I think that's, 
that's what's missing in this stuff, you know, in the, in the digital, you're missing those, those droplets of water um, that condense around a real human experience. I was reading an interview in, when you were talking about putting together one of the jazz records and, and you said coming to it with a certain number of ideas or in this specific instance, when you're talking about sending text messages back together, what, what, what does an idea mean in that con- context? You know, like what, what are the ideas that you're bringing to the table that are then manifesting themselves into songs? Yeah. So just basically the way, the way we write is just in motifs, right? So we'll write, we'll write a few motifs and we'll, we'll play them as a vamp uh, or, or, we'll, or we'll send a drum beat back to that or, or here's how I would approach this. And then the ones that we enjoy listening to, you know, we'll write a B part too. So the composition kind of starts with uh, the A part motif. Uh, here's a possible melody line. Do we all like this? Okay, if we like it, let's try to arrange it a little bit further. Let's write an A part. Let's write a B part. Let's write a C part, maybe a bridge. Um, those types of things. So it just kind of evolves from that. And it's the same with this last uh, complex record we did, uh, Honor. You know, we just got in and everybody brought five ideas to the table and those happened to be the best five ideas of the day. And then we just, we work on it for an hour and then just record them. Um, you know, that that to me is really kind of the most, that's, that's where all the practicing really pays off, right? When you can paint at, on a canvas in real time with guys at that level, um, it becomes extremely rewarding uh, and extremely uh, spiritual experience because, you know, to be in a room, you know, with, with those types of musical academics and being able to finish and start each other's sentences, it creates a bond that's really kind of otherworld. Right. And I've had those experiences in New York, like playing the Iridium with Frank uh, Catalano, where I didn't know anybody in the band. And I show up and it's like Theo Hill on piano. It was just a great, you know, play with Mingus, big band. Uh, John, uh, John Benitez on bass is like, like masters, right? And then you're like, holy shit. And you're playing like the Iridium or some crazy jazz club. And I'm just some rock guy from Chicago, you know, trying to hang with these dudes. And what you realize is like, they're just, they're there for you too, man. They're like, they're, it's not about like this comparison or, or competition. It's about like, what are we going to bring tonight? You know, what, what, what are we doing tonight? Let's, let's use what we got and bring what we can, um, which is super fun. It's interesting to, to hear you describe yourself as a rock guy because, you know, it, it, it seems to me, you know, if I'm listening to you talk about the early days of starting, you know, playing music with the, the Smashing Pumpkins, that you really, you were kind of a, like a jazz fusion guy who was bringing that into the rock world. Was that ultimately a strength that you were playing you were kind of steeped in this different kind of music that you had a different vocabulary oh yeah yeah that was my that was my ace in the hole i mean you know corgan loved that stuff i mean he was really like he was he was a closet mob Vishnu fan so he was like you know he he had the turtleneck and the medallion but at home he was listening to ingray and Mahavishnu. so he's like him and i like really hit it off on the prog rock from the prog rock standpoint um, you know, when I first joined the band, they were really into this kind of, you know, jangle pop, REM type stuff. And I was like, okay, this is probably going to last like a week. They literally had a drum machine before and after you. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And then, you know, the first, the first couple of jams that, that we wrote with me and the band were more like Bury Me and I Am One and those types of things. So I'm like, okay, if, if that's the stuff you guys want to play, I'm all in because I can play, I can play in a rock band that's super cool with a great songwriter and I can still play, you know, I can still do my version of Tony Williams 
while, while I'm doing it or, you know, anybody, Buddy Rich or Ian Pace or Elvin or I was like, I'm all in. And that's been, you know, that's been the way the band is, has been since the beginning of time. I mean, I've always been encouraged and kind of left on my own, obviously in a responsible way to kind of do what I want in the band, um, which has been super fun and still is. I mean, I'm just, I, I love the freedom. I love uh, the ownership um, that I'm given uh, in the band uh, to, to just do what I want. And I love the, the, the fact that I have a partner who understands my ability and writes, writes to challenge it, um, you know, oftentimes. When the Pumpkins finish a record, is there always an understanding that there's going to be another one? No, no, there's never, I mean, no, there's usually an understanding that there's not going to be any more. <laughs> it always feels like the last one. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you know, and again, I mean, we've demonstrated that it can, that it always can be the last one. I mean, I've, I've left, come back, left, come back. Um, you know, I think, I think for Billy and I, you know, I think we'll, we'll always do stuff. I mean, it's not whether we call it pumpkins or not, but it's, it's, yeah. it's just what we do. And I just not, I'm not like, he doesn't have to call me and go, Hey, you got time to make a record. I'm like, you know, he's, he's like, I'm going to write a 33 song album. I'm like, all right, start sending me stuff. You know, it's like, I'm into it. I'm down. Um, uh, it's what I do. You know, it's part of my, it's part of my thing. And I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's something that I have a lot of fun with and really with the amount of wisdom that we've been able to garner over the years, we can really bring a lot to the table in a musical environment now. Our conversations are as fun as the music and, and you know, finding a, a, an audio foundation, like on the, on the, on the record uh, we just released with Sear on it, you know, when we talked about the drums early on, we wanted to do, you know, we wanted to modernize the sound and that, and that included like me playing and using old uh, Simmons uh, and drum machine pads to replace the drum sound, which was super fun playing very simply challenging ourselves not to play syncopated rock uh, and try to write in that kind of very straightforward pop, pop context. Again, you know, kind of our own version of the oblique strategies thing, like don't do anything you've ever done before. Um, you know, when we talked about tones and stuff, you know, you, him and I, we can, we've listened to so much music together. You know, we were talking like early King Crimson and Bill Bruford, yes, like 1970, that snare drum sound. So, so like to get into somebody and, you know, Corgan worked at a, Billy worked at a music store, at a record store for the first four, three, four years of the band. So we had access to the most, the craziest shit. I mean, we would, I would just go hang at the record store and he would play me stuff. Like, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. They would never, you would never have access to because records were expensive back then. Um, nobody had a record collection like that because it would have cost tens of thousands of dollars. But, you know, that's where it's, it's fun when we can sit and talk about like, you know, Gary Wright Dreamweaver, like that keyboard sound, just something, you know, so so way out that only him and I would be, you know, talking about this shit. I mean, and we've been in the room so many times where we've been having these conversations. We, we just look around and everybody else is just kind of scratching their head. But we, you know, we, you know, through that, through that constant uh, evolution of listening, like he's always listening to new stuff. He's always buying new records. I'm always listening to new stuff. Hey, have you heard this? Have you heard this? Check this out. Um, you know, there's a real, uh, <clears throat> There's a real opportunity. There's a real um, 
joy in the exploration of kind of not just playing this stuff, but like, what do you want it to be? Because it'd be anything, right? And, and right now, I mean, records have probably meant the least and meant the most of any time in our career, right? A, a, record, a record is either not going to change our, our, our live architecture at all, or it's going to blow the lid off of it, right? So there's nothing really in the middle. So you don't get anything from like a rehash, right? You just want to be as out and avant-garde, obviously, again, in a responsible way to the, to the kind of brand, to use a bad word, but to the brand of the band, you want to stay on brand, but you still want to challenge yourself to be fucking out there because that's, that's what we do. 